Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former Chinese president and Communist Party leader Jiang Zemin has died. He was 96. Jiang rose to prominence in the 1980s during immense political upheaval. NPR's Emily Fang reports his death comes during another moment of turmoil for China. Jiang was promoted to head of China's ruling Communist Party in the chaos after the Tiananmen Square massacre, when the state killed its own citizens to stop pro-democracy protests that erupted after the death of another reformist Chinese leader. State media gave the cause of Jiang's death as leukemia and multiple organ failure. And his passing comes as China grapples with the aftermath of mass demonstrations this past weekend against the country's COVID controls and communist rule. Jiang, an engineer by training, was at the forefront of Chinese political life throughout the 1990s, relinquishing his last title as head of China's military only in 2004. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. The House is expected to vote today to force freight railroad unions to accept a new labor contract. It was brokered by the Biden administration, but a few of the unions have rejected the terms, saying railroads severely cut their sick time. President Biden says a potential rail strike could cripple the country. He's asked Congress to step in. Twelve Republican senators joined all the Democrats yesterday to codify marriage rights for interracial and same-sex couples. From the Mountain West News Bureau, Will Walkie reports on one of the Republican senators who voted for the legislation. Wyoming's Cynthia Lummis faced scrutiny from members of the Republican Party after she backed the landmark legislation in a procedural vote. A group of 40 pastors across the state, plus Wyoming's Secretary of State and Treasurer, all lobbied to change her mind. But Lummis still voted yes Tuesday, despite believing that marriage is, quote, between one man and one woman. She explained why on the Senate floor. We do well by taking this step, not embracing or validating each other's devoutly held views, but by the simple act of tolerating them. A majority of Wyomingites are in favor of same-sex marriage, according to a 2017 poll. For NPR News, I'm Will Walkie in Laramie, Wyoming. A federal jury in Washington has convicted two members of a far-right group of seditious conspiracy, an organized effort to overthrow the government. The jury convicted Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and an associate. Three other associates were acquitted of that charge, but convicted on related accusations. Stuart Rhodes' lawyer, Ed Tarpley, had ambivalent feelings about the verdicts. It's a mixed bag. There are good results and bad results mixed together. We're grateful for the not guilty verdicts that were received. Uh, We're disappointed in the guilty verdicts. Four more Oath Keepers members still face seditious conspiracy charges. These will be in separate federal trials. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will welcome Britain's Prince William and Princess Kate to the city today. The royal couple is visiting to award the Earthshot Prize to organizations that focus on combating climate change. The ceremony is Friday at the MGM Music Hall. Before that, the royal couple will meet with climate startups at the Greentown Labs Business Incubator in Somerville. They also plan to visit Harvard and the Kennedy Presidential Library. On Beacon Hill today, the governor's council is expected to officially certify this month's election results, while most races have been resolved with clear winners. WBMR's Steve Brown tells us a pair of legislative races remain so close that district-wide recounts are expected. In the open first Middlesex district, Pepperell Democrat Margaret Scarsdale appears to have defeated Townsend Republican Andrew Shepard by only 17 votes. 
The margin is even closer in the 2nd Essex District, where incumbent Republican Lenny Mira has a 10-vote edge on Democrat Kristen Kastner. The apparent losing candidates have each filed petitions for district-wide hand recounts, which will need to be completed between December 3rd and 10th. If Scarsdale is able to hang on to her win, she will flip a district that has been in Republican hands for decades. The final results will have little bearing on the overall makeup of the legislature as Democrats hold supermajorities in both the House and the Senate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts lawmakers are hailing the U.S. Senate's passage of a bill that would codify marriage equality. Senator Ed Markey says he's proud to have voted for the Respect for Marriage Act. Senator Elizabeth Warren also voted in favor. She says her party will continue to advocate for everyone's right to marry who they love. The bill still needs approval from the House. Wind and rain will be the big weather stories today, not snow, but state officials say when that arrives, they'll be ready. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says that's despite the fact that the state is still looking for snowplow operators. Well, I think we're down about 8 percent right now from what we have been in prior years. But again, we don't we don't see that as a problem. We have a lot of redundancy in our system. Some cities and towns have used pay hikes as a way to attract more plow operators. Ricardo Morales is the commissioner of public utilities in Pittsfield. You know, depending on the equipment you bring as a contractor, the plow and zanding equipment, you're looking at some somewhere between $90 an hour and $190 an hour. State officials say they begin planning for winter weather months in advance each year. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. The Bruins beat the Tampa Bay Lightning 3-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees are off until Saturday when they'll host the Colorado Avalanche. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Celtics against the Miami Heat. And at the World Men's World Cup this morning, Tunisia plays France while Australia takes on Denmark. Then this afternoon, Mexico p- plays Saudi Arabia. And it's Argentina against Poland. A cloudy start today with rain moving in after lunchtime. It could be heavy at times. There will also be some strong wind gusts. The high will be in the upper 50s. Tonight, some more rain and strong winds low in the mid-30s. Sunny tomorrow, but the strong winds continue high in the lower 40s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 7.08. WBUR supporters include America Media, a Jesuit ministry and publisher of a new interview with Pope Francis discussing topics from Ukraine to the role of women in the church. This interview can be found at americamagazine.org. I'm Lakshmi Singh from NPR. It has been a long year full of major news stories. The Supreme Court has eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. The January 6th committee has begun to lay out what it has learned about this morning as Ukrainians face down the reality of a Russian invasion. Britain's longest serving monarch has died at the age of 96. But there were also stories of resilience, discovery and hope. The CDC has now signed off on COVID-19 vaccinations for infants, toddlers. The James Webb Telescope caught those images of ancient history, billions of Only one major theater out of nearly 500 across the country has gone out of business. Humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. The NPR network is here for you, and it takes all of us to make this coverage possible. Donate to the station today, and thank you. 
This is Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. And a few minutes ago, you just heard a newscast. I don't think newscasts get enough credit. No, people let's really, hear it for the newscast. <laughs> I mean, people really listen at the top in the middle of the hour to know what's going on. It's very dependable. It's very complete. It's always there. And show that you support that coverage and you want it to keep coming to you every day. If you helped out in the last half hour, thank you so much. If not, This hour is your time to show how much WBUR means to you. It's our last fundraiser of the year. We're trying to raise $7,500 by 8 o'clock. So please give at WBUR.org or you can call 1-800-909-9287. Amory Sievertson is here with me this morning. Good morning, Rupa. $7,500 in the next 50 minutes. Okay, we can do this. We can do this because we know that you're out there um, listening to WBUR, that you rely on WBUR. Man, that that collection of stories just from the last year, I can't believe all of that happened <laughs> just within the last year. But it did. And you heard all of it on WBUR. And we helped you understand what was happening, when it was happening, what it means, what it means for your community, what it means for your life. You know what you got from WBUR. And we're asking you to give back to make sure that whatever comes at us next year, we're going to be there for you the same way we were there for you this year. But it takes you being there for us to be able to bring you everything from the newscasts like Rupa was talking about to in-depth conversations to, you know, reported pieces where you really hear the impact that the news has on on everyday people's lives. That's what you get from WBUR. That's what you support when you make a gift in any amount at 1-800, by calling 1-800-909-9287 or making that gift online at WBUR.org. And we are here asking for your help because we really believe in this. We work here for a reason. I say this because uh, in a few minutes you're going to hear, in a minute or so, you're going to hear from Tiziana Deering who was here yesterday with me. And I don't know anyone who better embodies just the feelings and the goals and the ethics of public radio. Uh, She really believes that this is the way, I believe, but she says it much better. This is the way that we preserve our democracy. This is how we educate the people among us. So here's Tiziana. Local news is being gutted. Local newspapers, local news sources, and it is in local news, good, attentive, quality journalism, that we both hold local officials accountable understand the local trends that affect all of us, recognize local solutions. It's how we vote. It's how we go to school. It's how we work. So for WBUR to have the capacity and ability to double down in the local space, to be truly available as a local journalism resource, the stakes are just so high for being able to do that now. She sounded kind of calm there, but she really gets worked up about (laughs) it. I hear the fire. I hear the fire. I feel the fire myself right now. Yeah, so think about how having this news in your life this year has enriched every day. Then multiply that by thousands, hundreds of thousands, to begin to get a sense of the impact WBUR has had every day of your life. We were there for you this past year. We want to be there for you and everyone else in the coming year. And to do that, we need you to continue 
contribute. To gi- so give at WBOR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 70, $7,300 left to raise in the next 47 minutes. We can get there with your help. We can get there when you take a minute to think about, you know, what sustains you. The best way to help us is to become a sustaining member where you give a little bit of money every month. And we know that we can count on you. You know that you can count on us. Think about what sustains you, what gets you through your every single day on this planet. You know, you turn on Morning Edition, you know what's happening in the world. If that brings value to your life, and we know that it does because you're here with us right now, sustain us in any amount. Help us cross these finish lines so that we can be there for you. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number or give online at WBUR. And we're trying to raise $7,300 in the next 45 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Members of the Oath Keepers took a vow to uphold the Constitution, and that is exactly what a jury says the group founder tried to overturn. Stuart Rhodes is the first person to be found guilty of seditious conspiracy, plotting to overthrow the government on January 6th of last year. Members of his group took part in the assault on the U.S. Capitol. Their trial came in a courthouse just steps away. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson covered the case. Uh, Kerry, getting a, a conviction on a seditious conspiracy charge is rare. How was the Justice Department able to do it this time? Yeah, prosecutors have faltered over the years because that sedition charge requires them to meet such a high burden of proof. But the jury in this case felt that bar had been cleared in part because of all the things Stuart Rhodes wrote and said before, during and after January 6, like the need to be prepared for a bloody civil war. One of the most damaging pieces of evidence in the trial was a recording of Stuart Rhodes four days after the Capitol assault. Here's Rhodes on that tape from January 10, 2021, where he's talking about whether storming the Capitol was the right thing to do. Maybe, but it also showed the people that we got a spirit of resistance. My only regret is they should have brought rivals. Now, Stuart Rhodes was not alone, Carrie. What happened to the other defendants in this case? For all the talk from the defense teams about D.C. juries being unfavorable to people tied to January 6th, the jury in this case found each of the defendants not guilty on at least one charge. This was a sophisticated set of verdicts. Here are some of the takeaways. The jury also convicted Florida Oathkeeper Kelly Meggs of seditious conspiracy, but it found three other defendants not guilty on that important charge. All of the defendants were convicted of obstructing an official proceeding, and most of them were convicted of tampering with documents documents after the fact. That charge can carry a long prison sentence, too. The trial took two months. Uh, Fifty witnesses were heard. Carrie, you were in there when the verdict came down. I mean, what, did, what was it like in there? Yeah, as the foreperson read the verdict, Stuart Rhodes kind of jerked his head downward and scribbled a note. His lawyer, Lee Bright, later told us that Rhodes, who was a graduate of Yale Law School, sent several handwritten notes with other things he wants done next, like setting up a likely appeal. The lawyer says he's disappointed, but he thanked the jury and the judge for their service. He says he hoped Rhodes' decision to testify in this case helped humanize him, but it's not clear that helped with the jury. 
A, one more thing I saw in the courtroom, Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, who seemed to be moved to tears by the verdict. As the jury left the room, he let out a big sigh. You know, this has been a hard road for the law enforcement officers who reported for duty on January 6th. Uh, What's going to happen next in this? Yeah, sentencing for these defendants won't happen until next year. Most of them have already been in federal custody for a while now. That's where they will stay. As for the Justice Department, it has two more seditious conspiracy trials coming up, including one next month for the leader of the far-right Proud Boys group. Attorney General Merrick Garland said the Justice Department is committed to holding people responsible for crimes related to January 6th. One of the key questions moving forward is just how high up on the ladder the new special counsel Council will get um, in that investigation. NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thanks. My pleasure. NATO's Secretary General is promising extra support for Ukraine. We will stand by Ukraine as long as it takes. We will not back down. Jens Stoltenberg spoke at a meeting of NATO foreign ministers, including the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. They met in Romania, which borders Ukraine, as Ukraine faces Russian attacks on civilian infrastructure. NPR's Ashley Westerman joins us from Kyiv. Ashley, what are the foreign ministers focusing on in this meeting in Bucharest? So this meeting is specifically about how NATO can support Ukraine through the winter, which is supposed to be particularly harsh this year, um, amid a constant barrage of attacks on Ukraine's critical infrastructure by Russian forces. The U.S. announced a new tranche of aid yesterday, $53 million, to help acquire equipment to fix Ukraine's utility grid. Um, Things like transformers, circuit breakers, surge arresters, vehicles, and other equipment. In a tweet announcing that new money, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Russia's attacks on Ukraine's civilian energy system were, quote, brutal and have imperiled millions. Also yesterday, NATO pledged to provide more weapons, air defense systems and munitions to Ukraine, um, but also non-military aid like fuel and generators. Yeah, it's been a week since uh, Russia just unleashed that attack that uh, Blinken called brutal on infrastructure in Ukraine. What's the situation there right now? Well, I I can say it's gotten better, but it's still difficult. For example, here at NPR's bureau, we experience hours-long electricity blackouts. We're actually on generator power right now. And these usually knock out our Wi-Fi and sometimes our cell service. Uh, But it's not just us, of course. Countrywide, there are still millions without power, too, because of the strikes last week. Um, Earlier this week, officials say about half the homes in Kyiv have had their power restored, and it is getting restored in other parts of the country, but they still have about 30% less power than they actually need, and that's according to the state energy operator, Energo. And, you know, the repairs are going slower than before as well. Um, Temperatures have been hovering around freezing most of this week, and we've had lots of snow, making it super difficult to fix what's been broken. So how are people coping with this? You know, the Ukrainians are toughing it out, really. Um, While countrywide energy curbs have been in place, um, people are also voluntarily rationing electricity. And you can see that just walking through Kyiv, darkened buildings and neighborhoods that clearly do have electricity. And there's also a sense here that rationing energy is not only imperative to their survival, but also patriotic. And in one act of defiance this week, officials here in Kyiv say Christmas trees will go up throughout the city. Um, However, many of those trees won't have lights. Here's Mayor Vitaly Klitschko on the decision to go ahead and celebrate the holidays amid the war. 
He says Putin wants to steal everything from us and wants to take the holidays away from children. We can't let that happen. I know defiance is one thing, but I mean, these big attacks on infrastructure, they become a regular thing almost weekly. Um, Does that mean people are going to be bracing for the next one? Absolutely. People are super worried. Uh, Russia is failing to beat the Ukrainians on the battlefield, so they're hoping to freeze them out by taking down their utility infrastructure. And A, it's become a bit of a game of whack-a-mole, honestly. You know, the Russians strike, the Ukrainians do what they can as fast as they can to repair the damage, but then the Russians strike again. And another big strike is what I think people are really most worried about right now. That's NPR's Ashley Westerman in Kiev, Ukraine. Ashley, thanks. Thank you. The U.S. men's national soccer team is headed for the World Cup knockout round for the first time since 2014. The U.S. advanced on a win over Iran, and fans celebrated at a watch party in Washington. I was never worried. I knew that we were going to pull it out in the end. It was exciting watching with all these people, seeing everybody come out in the middle of a work day. Netherlands next big team, huge team. USA can do it, man. They're playing with passion, they're playing with heart, and they can do it. If we make it out past the Netherlands, round of round of eight, big big step. Bring on the Netherlands. Bring on the Netherlands. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. USA! Bring on the Netherlands, one of the sentiments from the United States where people were watching. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman was watching at the World Cup in Qatar. Hey there, Tom. Hi. What was it like there? Crazy, Steve. Um, I went to Argentina versus Mexico last weekend. The attendance was nearly 90,000, but last night's crowd with a little over 42,000 there sounded louder. There was so much buildup, so much about soccer and politics. The din was something I had never heard before. When kickoff happened, I literally could not hear myself talk. It was extraordinary Mm. intensity. Wow. Uh, Not being able to hear Tom Goldman talk, that could be actually a a problem, but fortunately we can hear you now (laughs) talking about Christian Pulisic, who scored the one goal in the whole game and was injured while doing it. What happened? Yeah, well, for those who saw the play know that he came streaking in, took the ball on one hop and kicked it in for a score. His momentum carried him into this collision with the Iranian goalkeeper and he was down for several minutes in obvious pain. The official word was a pelvic contusion and that he's day to day. But there's this great photo of him in a hospital bed, right arm raised, fist clenched with the message, so proud of my guys, I'll be ready Saturday, don't worry. Saturday being the next big match in the knockout round against the Netherlands. How did the defense keep the Iranians at zero? Um, with poise and grit, um, kind of, kind of like the way you host Morning Edition, Steve. Um, <laughs> a, a, a one goal. Are you telling me a, this is a low-scoring program? No, go on, please proceed. Proceed. <laughs> one we fight hard. We is, fight hard. We do the technical things right. Go on, grit. go on, go on. You yeah. got grit. A, a one-goal lead is very precarious, and if Americans gave up one goal, a draw meant they'd be out of the World Cup. But U.S. defenders stayed calm, and when Iran ramped up its offensive attack near the end, uh, 
We need to give a shout out to Walker Zimmerman. His World Cup had been sullied by the foul he committed in the first game versus Wales, which led to a successful penalty kick by Wales that turned what looked like was going to be a U.S. win into a draw. That stung. So last night when Iran is bringing the heat late, U.S. goalkeeper Matt Turner makes a play on a shot attempt. He gets tangled with the Iranian player and the ball squirts through his legs. It's headed for the U.S. goal. Oh my God, a heart and throat moment for the U.S. But suddenly, Walker Zimmerman zooms in, clears the ball, saves the Americans, and gets redemption in the process. So I want to ask about the Iranian team. Of course, the Americans we heard at the beginning there were cheering for the United States, as you would expect, and yet there's a lot of sympathy in America and elsewhere for that particular team right now. What does the loss mean for Iran? It means they're out. They needed just a draw to advance and make the round of 16 for the first time ever at a World Cup, but not to be. Such a difficult World Cup for them as the terrible troubles going on in Iran for the past couple of months followed the team and its fans to Qatar. The team was caught between wanting to support those protesting the ongoing Iranian government crackdown and being threatened not to do it. So very difficult, and at the end, the Iranian team wasn't able to use football as a way to rise above all that although they did speak out at times. Tom, thanks so much. You're welcome. NPR's Tom Goldman in Qatar. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Anthony Brooks there, one of the best local political reporters I know. And Emery, I sometimes just try and just pitch random questions at him just to see what he'll say, if he'll know. And every time, I swear, I get a very deep, very detailed answer (laughs) because he knows everything about Massachusetts and Massachusetts politics and Massachusetts history. Think about supporting that type of experience and coverage when you think about um, who you want to support at this at this time of seasonal giving, of year-end contributions, of tax deductions. This is our last fundraiser of the year, and we are asking for your support. So if you can, please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is Morning Edition, and you are Amory Sievertson. I am. You nailed it. Um, Yeah, and you know, you bring up a good point because I don't want to blow up anyone's spot here, but we have decades of experience. On you know, in our reporting team here, you are hearing the work of of decades of experience covering these issues, living in the region, understanding the region. That's what you get from WBUR, and you give a gift to support that right now in any amount, and you could get a gift back because we had the New Yorker on the table, a year subscription to the New Yorker magazine to only further enrich your understanding of the world, um, and that's a thanks uh, for a gift of twelve dollars a month to WBUR. Now after six thirty tonight. That goes up to $20 a month. So we're encouraging you to give right now. We have $6,500 that we need to raise by 8 o'clock. So we've got about half an hour to do it. What is your part of that? What can you give right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by giving a gift at WBUR.org? I'm Deepa Fernandez, and I am a co-host of Here and Now. 
So I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and there were never really any people of colour, any immigrants. Um, People like my family were not journalists. We didn't see them on TV. We didn't hear them on the radio. And when I started college, a professor, he said that I belonged on the campus radio station. As I walked in the door, they looked at me and they said, can you read? And I was a bit confused, but I looked at them and said, uh, yeah. And they said, great, because the newsreader didn't show up. Uh, They thrust some copy in my hands and they said, you'll be on in five minutes. And instead of reading that copy in five minutes, I went to the phone and I called my mum and I called my sister and they proceeded to call every Indian in Sydney who then proceeded to call everybody they knew. And in five minutes when that mic went on, I nailed that script And everyone was listening and it spread through the community and it was this amazing thing. And then I realized the power of a microphone. I feel like at Here and Now, we tell stories every single day of communities that matter, of people who are part of our society, of people whose voices we need in the conversation because all voices are necessary to help us all be informed and and make better decisions. I hadn't heard that before, but that's it. She didn't know anyone who looked like her in this industry when she was a kid, and I didn't either. And now there are two of us here. Um, and it just it feels pretty good to be here and making a difference because we are here for a reason. We can make a difference here. We can bring you the unbiased, complete news that we, you know, we got into this business to do. So, All you have to do is turn on your radio, use the WBUR app, go to WBUR.org. It's super easy, and we will be there making sure you know what you need to know all day. We're trying to raise $7,500 in the next half hour. Sorry, you just got more in there. So please (laughs) give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you so much for representing this morning, and we know you enjoy... uh, Morning Edition and WBUR, thank you so much for what you're doing. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Focus Features, presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter in Select Theaters Friday. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO foreign ministers are promising to help Ukraine defend itself and to keep the power on in Kyiv and elsewhere during the winter. NPR's Ashley Westerman says Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced more U.S. aid to Ukraine at their two-day meeting in Bucharest. The U.S. announced a new tranche of aid yesterday, $53 million, to help acquire equipment to fix Ukraine's utility grid. Things like transformers, circuit breakers, surge arresters, vehicles, and other equipment. In his latest video address, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, warned Russian forces are trying to advance in the country's east and northeast. China's former president, Jiang Zemin, has died at the age of 96. 
State media in Beijing say Zheng died of leukemia and multiple organ failure in Shanghai. House Democrats are choosing new party leaders today. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is stepping down after nearly 20 years as the top House Democrat. But since Republicans will have a narrow majority come January, Pelosi's likely successor, New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, is running unopposed for minority leader in the next Congress. Catherine Clark of Massachusetts and California's Pete Aguilar also running unopposed and will round out the top three party positions. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Cambridge-based Biogen says its experimental Alzheimer's drug can slow the progression of the disease. The drug is called lecanemab. It was made in partnership with the Japanese drug maker Izai. Late-stage trials show people given the drug were 31 percent less likely to advance to the next phase of Alzheimer's during the study. The Food and Drug Administration is expected to decide early next year whether to approve the treatment under its fast-track program. A push is underway in Northampton to get the city to establish a commission to explore the issue of reparations. Alden Bourne reports. Backers of the idea say they have gathered more than 500 signatures in support of a reparations commission. The petition also calls on city leaders to make a formal apology to current and former black residents. Tom Weiner is a founding member of the Northampton Reparations Committee. He says the commission would study the harms done to black citizens historically and currently in Northampton and then recommend whatever redress of those harms would entail. Weiner says his group has already met with Northampton city leaders. Jamila Gore, who is a city councilor in support of the commission, says she's exploring the best path forward to get it approved. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Rescuers are reevaluating plans to save four pilot whales that were beached in Eastham. The animals were brought back to the water during high tide yesterday. One whale successfully swam away, but four others came back toward Sunken Meadow Beach. Rescuers are providing care for the whales until they can resume their rescue efforts. And the whales are big. The largest is about 4,000 pounds. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins remain unbeaten at home this season. They taunt the Tampa Bay Lightning 3-1 to last night. The Bees' next game is Saturday at home against the Colorado Avalanche. And tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Miami Heat. Cloudy and upper 50s today with rain starting about after 1 p.m. There will also be high winds that may cause damage. The showers and wind continue tonight and temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Tomorrow a much nicer day, sunny and breezy in the low 40s. It'll be sunny on Friday too in the mid 40s. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. Congress is deep into its lame duck session, a chance for lawmakers to finish business from earlier in the year. The Senate tried to do that last evening by passing a bill to protect some same-sex marriage rights. The House had already passed a somewhat different version of the bill. Same-sex marriage has been legal across this country under a Supreme Court ruling from years ago, but lawmakers acted out of concern that the court's conservative majority could someday revisit that issue. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo joins us now. So let's start with what happened last night. Democrats had been trying to pass a bill to protect marriage equality for some time, and the vote in the Senate was 61 to 36. So what changes will the House see when the bill comes back to them? The bill does one big thing. It federally recognizes same-sex and interracial marriages. By doing so, it allows these couples to qualify for federal benefits like Social Security and Medicare. It also requires that all states recognize same-sex and interracial marriages performed in other states. What the bill doesn't do is force states to perform same-sex marriages. What passed also allows for nonprofit religious organizations to refuse their services for ceremonies. Here's GOP Senator Susan Collins following the vote. I really salute my colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle who stepped forward despite a lot of pressure, despite a lot of criticism, and cast what I believe will be a vote that they'll look back on with great pride. The measure is expected to pass the House in the coming days and be signed by the president. Now, on Monday, Jimena, you reported that the president asked Congress for a bill to prevent a railroad strike. Why do you have to ask him? Sure. The Biden administration has been arguing for weeks that railroad unions and management should come to their own agreement without Congress intervention. But he changed course this week, asking Congress to pass a bill that would force unions to accept the agreement negotiated by unions and management and the administration. The Railway Labor Act allows the government to do this. Ahead of holiday travel, the shipping season, the administration is worried about what a strike could do to the recovering economy and feel like there's no other way to resolve the issue at the bargaining table. Railroads are responsible for the transportation of 30 to 40 percent of goods, not counting commuter rails. And there's concern over the transportation of fertilizer, food and other chemicals essential to the economy and everyday life of millions. And the administration's warning that hundreds of thousands of workers could lose their jobs if there's a strike. So despite touting his ability to be pro-labor, Biden is swallowing a tough pill asking Congress to make the strike illegal and force the agreement on the workers in order to save the economy. All right, so what are lawmakers saying about this? Well, last night, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that the House today will take up one bill to force the agreement and a second to vote to add seven days of paid sick leave for workers. Many of the workers who voted down the agreement have done so because it doesn't address sick leave policies. This is an effort to ease some concerns for members, especially on the Senate side. GOP Senator Marco Rubio already said he won't support a measure not supported by workers. And John Thune said the administration should handle it, not Congress. And some of on the left also want to see a bill that addresses the sick leave for workers. And some members like Senator Bernie Sanders and Colorado's John Hickenlooper have said that they won't support a bill that doesn't include this. But it's possible that only one bill makes it all the way to the president. That's NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thanks a lot. Thank you. China's state news agency says former President Jiang Zemin has died. 
State-run media say he died in Shanghai of leukemia and multiple organ failure. He was 96. He was at the center of Chinese political life for 15 years, a period when China seemed to be opening for change. Louisa Lim reports on his life and legacy. Jiang Zemin rose to power during the chaos of the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989. He was a surprise choice as party leader after the purge of the liberals. Originally, he was thought to be a weak transitional figure, but by 1993 he had become China's president, a post he held for a decade, all the while increasing his power base. He managed to steer China from great difficulties to great promise. Jia Qingguo from Peking University's School of International Studies says history will judge Jiang Zemin kindly. China became, under his leadership, more open to the outside world, more liberal, and China's economy became more dynamic. Jiang's main ideological innovation was a clumsy theory called the Three Represents. It was enshrined into Communist Party orthodoxy in 2002. Jiang wanted to allow capitalists to join the Communist Party, and this theory underpinned the ideological somersaults necessary to permit this. Willie Lam from the Chinese University of Hong Kong has written a biography of Jiang. He says this move ultimately ensured the party's continued grip on power. This has been instrumental in ensuring that the party remains relevant. But of course, the nature of the party has changed tremendously. It is no longer a party of, of the workers or peasants. What we have seen is that a new aristocracy has risen up the ranks. It is now a party of the rich and powerful. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Jiang Zemin was, by Chinese standards, a colorful leader. He delighted in quoting the Gettysburg Address in English and in singing in public. His image as a buffoon, a political lightweight even, obscured some of his real achievements. He oversaw the return of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty. And he fought domestic critics to speed up China's entry into the World Trade Organization. This brought China in line with international legal norms and forced it to open up hitherto closed sectors of the economy. In 2001, when negotiators agreed on the Chinese terms of entry, the then WTO Director General, Mike Moore, laid out the significance of this move. This is a decision that will change the world. The Chinese leadership have said to me that this is the most important decision they have made in 50 years. As leader, Jiang Zemin was never a man of the people. But Zhang Ming, from Beijing's Renmin University, believes Jiang Zemin will be remembered with the affection he didn't necessarily inspire when in power. Back then, we all found him very annoying. Zhang had many flaws. He was attention-seeking and liked performing. But in retrospect, we feel his era was all right. We miss it. That's the tragedy of China. The country hasn't changed for the better, so we miss the past. Jiang Zemin remained as the head of the Central Military Commission until 2004. But his influence resonates even today. He was a factional power broker, and the path Jiang set of pursuing economic development without political reform is still shaping the way China is run today.
Insights from our former NPR Beijing correspondent, Louisa Lim, on NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy is the host of our new awesome podcast, The Common. This is stuff that we bring to you every day for free, along with newsletters and other podcasts and what you hear on the radio. And you can access it no matter where you are, what you're doing Without any money, this is something that if you value this service, is if, if you value that this service is available to everyone, think about giving $10, 20 or $30 a month what you'd pay for coffee or lunch to help us produce the deep journalism that is the lifeblood of our city and our region. Go to WBOR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're trying to raise $5,400 before 8 o'clock, and helping me do that is Amory Sievertson. Yeah, and helping us do that is you, really, because we have 15 minutes left, $5,400 to go, and and we're asking you to just give whatever you can right now to support the breadth of what you get from WBUR, like Rupa was just talking about. You know, your $10 a month or $15 a month for WBUR truly does power everything that you get back, you know, and it, and it tells us that you have our back the same way that we have yours every day, whether it's just telling you what's happening in the world or bringing you essays like you get from Cognoscenti and podcasts like The Common that Daryl C. Murphy hosts. You know, just do your part right now. Uh, We have a special gift on the table only for today. Well, special in the sense that right now we're offering you a year subscription of The New Yorker magazine for $12 a month. So if you're already a subscriber, this is just going to re-up your subscription for another year uh, as part of your gift to WBUR, $12 a month. After 6.30 today, that goes up to $20 a month. So do that right now. Get that for yourself or for someone else in your life to to add more news and information and incredible coverage to your media diet by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online whatever you can at WBUR.org. I was just thinking last night just how great The New Yorker is. I happen to be reading this book. It's called um, The Ministry for the Future. It's one of Obama's favorite books. It's about like it plays out all the different uh, ways that we could address climate change in fiction. And it set me off on this path. I was Googling speculative fiction and philosophy in fiction. And it led me to a New Yorker article from 2013 that was all about, you know, how people can learn more about climate change and other really important issues through fiction. And it was you know, in that moment, just what I was looking for. It was something you would only see in The New Yorker. And that's why we are so proud to offer it to you as part of your gift today. We are trying to raise, you're stepping up so quickly. We're trying to raise $4,900 in the next 13. 13. Thank you, math. (laughs) That's slow for me. So thank you. 
please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Help us out. We are trying to show that Morning Edition listeners care and represent and support this show. So please, 1-800-909-9287. And your anecdote there about The New Yorker, I mean, it really speaks to the fact that a gift to WBUR is a gift that keeps on giving because you're going to hear things that will shape the way you understand the world and see the world. You're going to learn about um, books that that you can't wait to read and want to tell I other know, people about. It's okay. You're going to hey, proud represent. You know, I'm sure we have many of us here out listening, and and you're gonna you're gonna learn about books. You're gonna hear perspectives. You're gonna hear opinions. You're gonna hear other people's stories that you never would have heard of otherwise. And and you're going to get yourself a subscription to the New Yorker, where you're gonna learn even more of that stuff and and more things that you want to share with people. So you hear exactly where your money goes when you make a gift to WBUR, which is why it's so important that you do it, that you step up, that you join this community that perpetuates, you know, the the nonstop learning and education and, uh, you know, insight that you get from WBUR and inspiration. You get all that by giving back in any amount. 1-800-909-9287 is the number. Uh, you can go to WBUR.org. We have $4,700 left to raise in 11 minutes. We can do it with your help. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bess, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Since Russia launched its war in Ukraine, some of Russia's top artists and creative professionals have moved to Israel. Their Jewish heritage offers a ticket to a new life. They land at the Tel Aviv airport, they receive a new citizenship, and they take a chance to rebuild their artistic careers as well as safely voice their consciences about the war. NPR's Daniel Estrin sent this report from Tel Aviv. What a difference a year has made for music producer Yevgeny Petrushansky. Last year, his record label in Russia produced this jazz album, which got nominated for a Grammy. This year, his record label has gone silent. I don't feel it's the right time now to release music as a Russian label. For the ethical reasons, I stopped. Days after Russia invaded Ukraine, he left St. Petersburg for Tel Aviv. It happened to be Israel because I had a chance, because of my Jewish roots from my father's side. With partial Jewish heritage, he got to claim Israeli citizenship. Now he's re-registering his record label in Israel and hopes to release new records next year. It's impossible to release a record in Russia so it goes to the foreign audience. The majority of music aggregators who released the music towards the platforms like Apple Music, Spotify, they're not working, they're not presenting in Russia anymore. More than 28,000 Russians have moved to Israel since the war, including some of Russia's biggest creative talent, like pop star Ala Pugacheva, who's basically the Russian Madonna, one of Russia's top photographers, and reportedly a prominent late-night TV host. Russian-Israeli journalist Lisa Rozovsky reports on these VIP arrivals for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Lots of Russian people have Jewish origins. It's common among people who belong to the so-called intelligentsia. Now, when the war has started, I think everybody literally remembered their Jewish grandma. 
Anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent can apply for Israeli citizenship for themselves and close family. Some Russians use their new Israeli passport to get to Europe, which is restricting Russians now. Russian exiles have heard the criticism in the West that they should be staying home to protest. You know, it's very easy to live in a democratic country and say that you have to, you know, uh, protest against a totalitarian authoritarian government. Try to go to Moscow and do that. Try. Then I will send you letters to jail. Maxim Katz fled Moscow. In Israel, he has the freedom to publish his anti-war YouTube channel, which often gets more than a million viewers a day, including many inside Russia. Especially in Jerusalem, there is a big scene of, of experimental music. This recent networking event uh, in Jerusalem brought a hundred Russian and Ukrainian arts professionals to meet Israeli directors in theater, cinema, music and dance. It's where I meet choreographer Polina Mitryashina. She worked at one of the world's leading dance institutions, Russia's Marinsky Theater. Yes, okay, Marinsky, I like this. I like the guys in Marinsky, I like my artists, but now they're in Oslo. They left Russia, too. She's trying to rebuild her career in Israel. She's not looking back. Sometimes I'm angry to the people who stay, who stay and continue to work for the big companies and continue to make the money in this country, and I'm like, are you crazy? You're like a sponsor of the war. Another new arrival to Israel is Russian artist Victor Melamed, who's illustrated portraits for the New Yorker magazine. One of the reasons I came to Israel is because I want to be a person of the world. Separating Russia, like cutting it off, it's a thing that's happening. Staying behind the Iron Curtain was incredibly scary. Now he's moved his family to a cozy Tel Aviv suburb, but he's still wrestling with what it means to be a Russian artist at this time. This time is uh, very demanding. We need to grow up. We cannot afford to stay the same. He has a new ritual now. Every morning he draws a black and white portrait of a Ukrainian civilian killed in a Russian attack. Then he posts it on Instagram to 15,000 followers. He says it's his way of pinching himself not to get too comfortable in his new home in Israel. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Camels are an important part of the history and culture of the Middle East. They're also very popular with many of the one million tourists visiting Qatar for the World Cup which is great for camel tour guides who are making some money, but the animals are working overtime. One camel tour guide told the Associated Press he normally gives about 20 rides a day, 50 on the weekends. With the World Cup, he's now giving 500 each morning, 500 more in the afternoons. They've had to get a lot more camels to meet demand. I don't think that that is a terribly heavy burden for a camel. Richard Bullitt is a professor emeritus on the Middle East at Harvard and literally wrote the book on the history of camels. He says based on what he knows, he's not that concerned about the camels working extra shifts. Camels are enormously durable animals. There was a famous horse race, camel race, where a horse raced a camel for 150 miles, something like that. And the horse won the race. Then the horse was utterly exhausted and the next day, the camel walked back the 150 miles to the place where it started. 
In the 6th century, camels were the world's primary form of land transportation. Thanks to the hump on their back, packed with fat, they can go a week without water and months without food. It makes an almost energy-free form of transport. In modern-day Qatar, camels are valued for racing. They can run as quickly as 40 miles per hour for short stretches and 30 miles per hour on long distances. They probably get good mileage, too. <laughs> But tourists hoping to cross a camel ride off their bucket list should try their best to stay on the animal's good side. Camels do spit. If they're annoyed, they can also kick out to the side. They don't really care much about people. So on this hump day, hopefully the burden on your back is a little lighter than theirs. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This time of year, we reflect on our lives and the people who mean so much to us. I'm Lisa Mullins. When you support WBUR, you'll create stories that let us peel back the curtain and reveal the bigger picture to make sense of what's going on around us. We're hoping you'll make a year-end tax-deductible contribution now. You can give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That was probably a pretty familiar voice for you, Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. If you depend on her every day, just like you depend maybe on me at Morning Edition, when you wake up in the morning to know everything you need to know to bring it to you in a way that is simple and clear and complete, if you consider public radio one of the essentials of your life, we're asking you to be part of our essential support. We need to raise $3,800 Okay, two minutes. In the next two minutes, Ooh, <laughs> we're trying we to raise this. that. We got this. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and I'm here with Emery Sievertson, who's trying to do this with me. We uh, Please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Show how much you care and you support WBUR. We're all in this together. Be in it with us and decide what part of that $3,800 you can give. That's right. Thirty. We're now down to $3,200. Oh. So we are chipping away. Just about a minute left to go. But I say we got this because we've got you. We have you out there who turn to us every every morning. You know, I know that we're an essential part of your day because you are listening right now at <laughs> 7.58 in the morning trying to understand what's happening. Maybe we are um, we've, we have tagged along on the car ride, your commute to work. Um, or maybe you've just finished work and you're turning to us, you know, before you before you wrap up for the day. 
You are out there and we are here for you. And now is the time to put those things together and back us up here. Be there for us with a support, you know, a gift of your support in any amount. Can you give uh, $10 a month or $15 a month? Can you make a larger gift right now of $500 or $1,000? We now have $2,800 to go that we're trying to raise in the next minute. So just ask yourself what your part is to keep WBUR here for you, strong for you, sustaining you, sustain us in return. 1-800-909-9287 is the number or go to WBUR.org and join us right now. And all you have to do is listen for a few minutes to hear another example of the important service we provide and what we bring you every day. A few minutes ago, you heard more coverage from Ukraine. You know, that conflict has gone on much longer than a lot of people thought, and a lot of other news organizations, frankly, have pulled out. And NPR instead has is pulled in an expression. We're here. We're in. We're in this. Yeah. Be be in this with us they right actually, now. I'm very proud, actually. They started a bureau in Ukraine, and they are there for the duration of what's happened. So help us bring you the important news that you value. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You are stepping up. We now need $2,300 to go in the next minute. Okay, $2,300. We can do this. Or 30 seconds, sorry. 30 seconds. Okay, we can do this because, you know, you count on us, we count on you, and all we're asking you right now is to just do your part of that $2,300. What is your part? Maybe it's $10 a month. Maybe you want to get yourself a subscription to the New Yorker magazine for a year at $12 a month. That goes up after today. So do it now. Be there for us. $1,900 to go. What can you do? 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is laying out plans for today's expected vote in the House to avert a national freight rail strike. NPR's Giles Snyder has more. Speaker Pelosi released a letter to House Democrats after joining congressional leaders for a meeting with President Biden at the White House, where she told reporters she does not like going against the union's ability to strike. But weighing the equities, we must avoid a strike. In her letter, Pelosi said the House will vote first on legislation that would impose the tentative deal broker by the White House in September. She also acknowledged a major sticking point that led four of 12 rail unions to reject the deal, paid sick leave. She says the House will hold an up or down vote on whether to add seven paid sick days to the deal before sending it over to the Senate, where it will need 60 votes to pass. Trial Snyder, NPR News. The South Carolina Supreme Court has ruled that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows must testify before a special grand jury in Georgia. That panel is investigating whether then-President Donald Trump and his allies tried to illegally influence the 2020 election. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Alex Helmick has more. 
Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, like several others subpoenaed by Fulton County's district attorney, fought testifying in front of the special grand jury in Georgia. Last week, Senator Lindsey Graham gave testimony after taking his failed attempt not to appear all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Prosecutors are looking into a possible coordinated effort by Trump and his campaign to pressure state elections officials to overturn Georgia's election result. In 2020, voters here gave the state's 16 electoral votes to a Democratic candidate for the first time since 1992. For NPR News, I'm Alex Helmick in Atlanta. NATO foreign ministers are in their second day of meetings in Romania. They're talking about fresh support for Ukraine. One big focus is helping Ukraine get through the winter. Russia has attacked Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that means cuts in heating and light to Ukrainian civilians. What's going on now in Ukraine that we're seeing every day, this assault on the energy infrastructure, this assault against civilians in every corner of the country, is not normal and can't be normalized. Yesterday, the Biden administration announced it would send $53 million to Ukraine. This is to shore up its energy infrastructure. Chinese state media say former Chinese president and Communist Party leader Jiang Zemin has died of leukemia and multiple organ failure. He was 96. Jiang ascended as Chinese leader in 1993, a few years after the Chinese government crushed pro-democracy protests. It's NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Prince William and Princess Kate will arrive in Boston today. This is their first international trip since the death of Queen Elizabeth in September. They're coming to Boston to help award the Earthshot Prize. The award goes to groups working to solve problems caused by climate change. The visit kicks off with a public ceremony this afternoon at Boston City Hall. While here, the royal couple will also visit Cambridge, Chelsea, and Somerville. Governor-elect Maura Healey is speaking publicly about her planned legislative agenda. Healey and Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll will take office in about five weeks. They have already met privately with House and Senate leaders. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Healey says she's had a good working relationship with the legislature during her eight years as attorney general. She says she expects to have regular talks with legislative leaders and, as is current practice, will meet with reporters to talk about those discussions. And so during this transition time, we continue to talk with them and talk to others in leadership about a variety of issues. Um, that work will continue, and I expect to continue to have a, a terrific relationship with the legislature. Healy says her top legislative priorities are to make life more affordable in Massachusetts and to prioritize housing production in the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A controversial planned electrical substation in East Boston is a big step closer to reality. The state board that approves projects like that is getting is letting Eversource bypass environmental permits needed for the project. Environmental advocates say the substation will add to pollution in the area. Energy officials say the project will bring a much-needed electrical source to the neighborhood. Conservation groups tell the Boston Globe they plan to file an appeal. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kafar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. The Bruins have had 13 games at home so far this season, and they've won them all. That includes last night's 3-1 victory over the Tampa Bay Lightning. The Bees' next game is Saturday at home against the Colorado Avalanche. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Miami Heat. And and in your forecast, we're going to have a cloudy start today with rain moving in after lunchtime. That rain could be heavy at times. There could also be some strong wind gusts. The high will be in the upper 50s. Tonight, some more rain and strong winds. Low in the mid-30s. Sunny tomorrow, but the strong winds continue. The high will be in the lower 40s. Right now, it's 45 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. Like Robin said, this is what we can do when we band together. This is something special that we do as community. We support WBUR, so it is there every morning for us, giving us what we need to need what we need to know to be responsible members of our community and our society. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of Morning Edition, here with Amory Sievertson, host of the Endless Thread podcast. We are in our end-of-the-year fundraiser asking you to help us raise $7,500 by 9 o'clock. We have a goal every hour, so every hour of listeners can step up and show how much they support WBUR. Please think about giving us your uh, a tax-deductible year-end donation, sorry, that's a mouthful, give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Don't be sorry, Rupa. It's a mouthful, <laughs> but it's important. It's crucial. We set these goals, this $7,500 goal by 9 o'clock. We set these goals to keep us on track because we're only asking for the money that it takes to bring you WBUR as you know and love and rely on it. And so we're asking you to help keep us on track and make sure that we can keep bringing WBUR to you uh, into the next year and beyond. And a great way to do that is to make a monthly gift, to become what we call a sustaining member so that you know that you are sustaining us the same way that we sustain you day in and day out. We're asking you to be there for us with a gift in any amount. As Robin said, we band together with these with these modest contributions and you decide what that is. Is it $10 a month or $15 a month? Is it $20 a month or $50 a month? Is it a larger gift that you can make right now to WBUR? Do it now at one by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving at WBUR.org. And when you do, you could get yourself a year's subscription to The New Yorker magazine as our thanks for a contribution of $12 a month. Tomorrow, that goes up to $20 a month. So do it right now. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. 
go to wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Just another example of what WBUR brings you every day. I look forward to this time every morning when the WBUR Today newsletter comes out and drops in my inbox. They have made a joke that I've been wanting to make all morning, and I'm going to do it now because I'm just going (laughs) to quote them. It's one if by land, two if by sea, but how many if by plane? The British, specifically Prince William and his wife, Kate, the Princess of Wales, are coming. I think they could have gone, that's the end of their joke, but I think they could have gone much farther. I mean, the whole British are coming thing to Boston is just like, there's so much there. But anyway, please help us uh, support this important journalism that you depend on, that you look forward to, that you enjoy every morning. We bring some levity to your life. We, Along with the important news that we bring you every morning, we're trying to raise $7,500 in the next 50, okay, 49, 48 minutes. And we need your help to do that. So please show your support for WBUR. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Again, it's 1-800-909-9287. Man, Rupa is fired up. I love it. And, and a little inside baseball here. You know what fuels Rupa? Ants on a log. She eats ants on a log for breakfast <laughs> many, in the studio. Many people know that. I don't think that's a secret. <laughs> but you know what fuels us at WBUR? It's you. We can only do what we do because we are listener supported. You make up the majority of the funding that makes everything you hear possible. And when you think about that and you and you realize that we are counting on you, if you don't pick up and call, who will? If you don't support, who will? You can only control what you do in this world, what you contribute, what you um, you know support. And we're That's asking deep. you to support us now. 1-800-909-9287 or give online as generously as you can at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance, brokerage, and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. What does the world's most populous nation do now that its COVID policies are under stress? China has kept the number of COVID cases exceptionally low. In fact, its policy is called zero COVID. The trouble is that cases are now well above zero and protests are spreading against COVID restrictions. Many, many lives are at stake, not to mention one of the world's most important economies. So let's talk through the science with NPR Global Health correspondent Michaeline Duclef. Good morning. Good morning. What has China's policy been up to now? So the idea really is to stop transmission of the virus inside the country. You might have cases that get imported or there could be outbreaks, but the government tries to quickly limit the spread. New Zealand and Singapore are among other places that have tried this. But here's the thing. Omicron is so transmissible that you need incredibly harsh and severe restrictions on people's movements. So very strict quarantines where you can't leave a room for days, even weeks, and enormous amounts of testing. So, for example, recently the Chinese government started testing millions of people in Shanghai daily. And back in the summer, they locked down the entire city. Wow. For how long? Two months, Steve. I mean, imagine a city of 26 million people with everyone inside their homes more than two years into the pandemic. 
Well, that helps to explain why there have been so many widespread protests just in recent days, a specific incident leading to some of that, but it spread to many cities, it would seem, based on social media. But is zero COVID even possible? You know, that's the question. You know, for right for most of the pandemic, it has worked. China has kept cases and deaths very low. The country has recorded only about 6,000 deaths among 1.4 billion people. In the U.S., there have been more than a million deaths among no. only 330 million people, right? The problem, though, is this approach isn't sustainable year after year. I was talking to Jennifer Nuzzo about this. She's an epidemiologist at Brown University. She says other countries that have tried this approach basically abandoned it months ago. And right now, she says it looks like it might be failing in China as well. Despite very aggressive measures, despite high mask usage, massive testing efforts and uh, quarantine and isolation, they are still dealing with what is probably more community spread than is being recognized. In the face of these protests, Chinese officials have been suggesting through state-run media, well, we're already easing the restrictions. Is it inevitable they have to abandon their policy? So every researcher I spoke to about this question said, yes, it, it's inevitable. One of them is Yang Zhou Wang. He's a global health fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He says China will probably be forced to reopen within the next year, perhaps the next few months. And that's because people are just tired of these harsh restrictions. Yeah, it's simply people are tired of it. The more people got to know right, the nature of the virus, you know, they, they started to question why this zero COVID policy. COVID policy has had huge consequences on people's lives. There have been food shortages, people have lost jobs, and they're cut off from the rest of the world. But let me ask about the other side. If China were to end the restrictions for 1.4 billion people, would millions of people die? You know, some people have speculated, yes, but it's not clear what's going to happen. One concern is that the vaccination rates for elderly people are quite low. Only about 40% of people over 80 have been vaccinated with two shots. That leaves about 20 million people at high risk for severe COVID in death. But China is preparing. They're building more ICU beds across the country. That all said, Wang says it's really hard to predict because no country has been in this situation where they've held off COVID for so long. If China can reopen very slowly to limit transmission, it could possibly avoid a big crisis. NPR Global Health correspondent Michaeline Duclef, always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks. You're welcome, Steve. President Biden is hosting his first state visit this week for his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron. Relations between the U.S. and France are strong, but there are points of tension. France vocally challenges some U.S. policies where other European partners can be a little more subtle. But France's outspokenness also helps to explain why Paris is such a strong old ally of Washington. For insight on what's at stake during Macron's first state visit, we turn to Alexandra de Hoop-Scheffer, director of the German Marshall Fund's Paris office. Alexandra, first off, what do you think will be the number one point of discussion between Biden and Macron? Well, I think the energy and the trade agenda is going to be the number one. Um, and and President Macron will really serve as, if I can call him that way, the European special envoy uh, to prepare the ground for the following trade and tech council, which will actually take place as well in Washington on December 5th. So there's a sort of diplomatic sequence uh, where Macron will try to play a role, trying to negotiate, but there are very little chances that he will get some, some limited exemptions 
for a certain European industries uh, to the same way that Canadian and Mexican industries have been exempted from certain measures in the Inflation and Reduction Act. So that, I would say, is the top, I would say, difficult agenda. And then the second piece is Ukraine. And there, what I see happening is a rapprochement, a conver growing convergence between the US and French perspectives when it comes to pushing Kiev for negotiations, especially as we are entering the winter period. That unofficial title you gave him, a European Special Envoy, it seems like Macron over the last few years has really taken that and, and run with it. He seems to like to be in the center of the action. I remember his meetings with uh, Vladimir Putin. That's also because the, I would say the European political landscape has truly changed. After Brexit, uh, you also have a Germany which is much more hesitant in the midst of what I would call a sort of identity crisis on many issues. Uh, its relation with Russia, its relation with China, its industrial policy, its energy dependencies. And so France, I would say by default, stands out as a, t a key player in the European landscape and therefore as a key interlocutor for Washington. And that's why Macron finds himself again um, going as a, you know, this third, first leader in the state visit to Washington. Where do you see the biggest area of disagreement between Biden and Macron on how to deal with Russia and the invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think this is where I see really a growing convergence. Um, you know, if you listen to what John Kirby said yesterday, it was very revealing, you know, saying that he valued uh, and applauded to a certain extent Macron's willingness to continue to speak and dialogue with Vladimir Putin. And so this is where I think France on the Ukraine-Russia uh, dossier has an added value to say, you know, it might be useful for you, Washington, that I play that sort of diplomatic in-between role, such as in the Indo-Pacific, you know, France has this uh, idea of portraying itself as a balancing power or a third way in the US-China competition. And this is also a way for Macron to say, you know, we're not taking a different position from the American position vis-a-vis -vis China, but we are offering you a parallel track, a complementary track, that Americans might indeed find very helpful in the competition with China. You know, state dinners tend to include a lot of pomp and circumstance. Um, there, there's that elaborate dinner at the White House. I mean, what, what talk actually gets done during these state visits? How, why, why do they matter, Alexander? Well, they, 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 do, they do matter because, I mean, in France's case, I would qualify France as a rigorous ally of the United States, and you said it in your introduction rightly. Uh, France is a challenging partner for the United States, and therefore I would say an even more important, crucial partner for, for Washington. It says out loud what other European partners think and is also very vocal about US-European disagreements. So what I expect in the Biden-Macron conversation is in fact a very direct and frank conversation. That's Alexander de hoop Shefford directs the German Marshall Fund's Paris office. Thank you. Thank you. For almost 40 years, Mauna Loa has been dormant, but early Monday morning, the Hawaiian volcano began erupting. Jennifer Sullivan lives nearby. I felt like I had almost fallen out of my bed a little bit, and it was probably about like two in the morning, 
and it felt like there had been like a little bit of an earthquake. Her home is in an old fishing village on the slopes of Mauna Loa, which is the largest active volcano in the world. I looked up into the sky and it was just red glowing, this deep red coming from the top of the mountain. And <laughs> it was intense. It was surreal. But not unexpected. Wendy Stovall is a volcanologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. She says the volcano has been showing signs of unrest for a couple of months. As magma moves into the volcano, it fractures Earth. And that fracturing of the Earth is what is recorded as earthquakes. Just like the one that woke Jennifer Sullivan in the middle of the night. And though her house isn't in danger now, she's packing a few bags just in case. Volcanologist Wendy Stovall says it's hard to make predictions about what might happen next with this eruption. We can never speak in absolutes because the volcano is going to behave how it is going to behave. And it's disrupting life for Sullivan and her neighbors. Ash and volcanic air pollution have blocked out the sun. Most of us get our energy from solar power, so I am at a almost like a negative point on any kind of energy right now. But Sullivan says for all the inconvenience, she's excited to witness history. It's almost transfixing. It has like a weird energy about it. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing to witness. Visitors and locals can now visit not one, but two erupting volcanoes on the island. Kilauea, just 20 miles away, has been erupting for more than a year now. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we look at a chili recipe that may raise eyebrows and offend taste buds of some purists, and that's vegetarian chili. To listen, please stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or the old-fashioned way, just listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition, and I'm Rupa Shanoi. I gotta say, I'm a huge fan of Tamara Keith. She's also on another one of my favorite programs, the PBS NewsHour, if you needed just more evidence that I'm a nerd. I don't <laughs> know. So yeah, that, that whole deadline thing really makes sense to me. I have no idea how she does everything that she does. I didn't need does any so more evidence, Rupa, but I appreciate <laughs> the uh, that you can back that up with more material. <laughs> you're hearing that you're hearing Emery Sievertson here this morning with me. We're in our last fundraiser of the year asking your for your contributions because we know a lot of people are thinking about giving at this time of the year and maybe thinking about giving tax deductible donations. So we're asking for your support and we know that you want to support us because you've already supported us and you're listening right now. So help us raise 
$6,800 by 9 a.m. So that's, what, 35 minutes. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And when you give to WBUR, it really is a service to the community. There's a whole community of listeners out there who rely on us. Some of those listeners are able to give right now, and some are not. So give because you can and give because others can't. And use that to kind of fuel, you know, and help you decide how much to give. If you can give 15 or $20 a month right now to WBUR, do it. Please do it. Please give for someone who cannot give. Give yourself that deadline, as Tamara Keith was saying. You can get it done in five minutes. I'd say you'd get, you can get it done in less than that. I think this is a <laughs> two-minute operation that will cross something off of your list. It's going to make you feel good. It is good for the whole community. And you'll know that you are helping support WBUR through the end of this year and into next year. We have $6,300 left to go in the next 33 minutes. And all you have to do is just decide what your part of that is. What can you give? 1-800-909-9287 is the number or give at WBUR.org. Yeah, you guys are bringing this goal down fast. Thank you so much for taking action this morning. We know that you support WBUR and you are showing it. And we just want to say thank you. If you haven't done so already, give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And you also get the New Yorker at uh, uh, 40% savings. Is that right? 40%? Yeah, 40, 40% off if you if you get it today. It's a it's that's our thanks for a gift of $12 a month to WBUR. Uh, thank you. Thanks. So that's a New Yorker. I was just actually looking at the New Yorker website, and they have a really interesting analysis of, you know, the, the protests that are happening in China right now over the COVID restrictions and how it started with the fire. And they t- go into, like, how the COVID restrictions relate to Xi Jinping's policies and how they're so closely related to him and that's why it's going to be really hard for the Communist Party to change course and why it really doesn't know what to do right now. So our coverage really meshes well with what you find in The New Yorker. If you combine us with them, you're going to be like the super educated, Mm. responsible all aware citizen and you will feel good about yourself especially when you listen to w- WBUR to Morning Edition and you read the New Yorker so give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and it's a 40% savings on the New Yorker right now because tomorrow that goes up to a gift of $20 a month so if you want to get that year subscription of the, of the New Yorker for just $12 a month you have to do it today before 6.30 p.m. today but remember, Tamara Keith gave you a deadline. You have to do it in the next five minutes here. And you really are enriching your um, palette of news and information when you give to WBUR. You're giving that to your whole community. And this is the time of year, Rupa, when, you know, we make lists of stuff and gadgets that we want to get for mm-hmm. people. Think about where your money could be going. You could be using your dollars to fuel the fact-based journalism that informs and inspires and, you know, helps a whole community have a have a stronger sense of what's going on in the world and and really what it means to be a human being you can power that with a gift in any amount sixty three hundred dollars to go what can you give right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving at wbur.org support for npr comes from this station and from charles schwab dedicated to serving clients with 24 7 live support The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. At the urging of President Biden, the House is expected to take up legislation today designed to head off a potential freight rail strike. The bill would impose an agreement brokered by the Biden administration on 12 rail unions. They represent more than 100,000 employees at large freight rail carriers. Four of those unions rejected the proposal, saying it doesn't include enough paid sick leave. Amid high inflation in the U.S. economy, NPR's Jimena Bustillo says the White House is worried about what a strike would do. There's concern over the transportation of fertilizer, food, and other chemicals essential to the economy and everyday life of millions. And the administration's warning that hundreds of thousands of workers could lose their jobs if there's a strike. So despite touting his ability to be pro-labor, Biden is asking Congress to make the strike illegal and force the agreement on the workers in order to save the economy. A freight rail strike could begin as early as next week. The Senate has passed legislation to protect same-sex and interracial marriages. The bill enshrines those protections in federal law. Twelve Republicans joined Democrats in the Senate to pass the bill. It now heads to the House. There's been no immediate claim of responsibility after a bombing at a religious school in northern Afghanistan left at least 10 students dead. That's according to the Taliban. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Ruba Fishinoy. The Boston City Council will discuss a proposal today to lower the voting age in city elections to 16. Councilor Kenzie Bach is a sponsor of the measure. She says she's motivated by the experiences she had as a teacher. What I saw as a civics teacher was that young people are absolutely capable of engaging with the questions that are burning in their community in fact, often these are the questions that are on their minds. And so finding out that there's a real outlet for making change in their community is hugely empowering. If the city council passes the proposal today, it'll go to the state legislature for approval. Similar ordinances have been passed in Cambridge, Somerville and Lowell, but have stalled at the state level. State environmental regulators are holding their first public meeting today on proposed changes to septic tank regulations on Cape Cod. The State Department of Environmental Protection says nitrogen pollution is degrading water quality on the Cape. The proposal would require people in designated areas to replace their septic tanks within five years. Some residents are worried about that because a new septic system can cost upwards of $35,000. High prices for supplies are making the tradition of cutting your own Christmas tree more expensive in Massachusetts. Some tree farm owners say they're worried that'll put their businesses at risk. WBMR's Rob Lane has more. When David Morin opened Arrowhead Acres Tree Farm in Uxbridge decades ago, he said his neighbors were relieved. At the time, Massachusetts was quickly industrializing. They had feared Morin might use the land to build a factory. Nowadays, Morin says developers are buying up tree farms to build condominiums in response to a massive housing crunch. Housing got more expensive in Boston or the Boston suburbs. 
all of those folks moved out to the country out here in Uxbridge, for example, they complain when they hear roosters crowing and they want it to be like Boston, but they don't want to pay the prices of Boston housing. Morin argues tree farms benefit the state because they support wildlife and control erosion. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. The Bruins topped the Tampa Bay Lightning 3-1 to last night at the Garden. Taylor Hall scored twice for Boston. The Bees are off until Saturday when they'll host the Colorado Avalanche. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics face the Miami Heat. Cloudy and upper 50s today with rain starting after about 1 p.m. There will also be high winds that may cause damage. The showers and wind continue tonight and temperatures fall to the upper 30s tomorrow. Tomorrow, a much nicer day, sunny and breezy in the low 40s. It'll be sunny on Friday, too, in the mid-40s. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Many criminal cases end not in a trial, but in a plea deal. Lawyers negotiate such agreements in private, meaning the public learns very little about how they work. Now, studies find problems with plea deals in three regions. It seems some innocent people plead guilty simply to resolve their cases. Even some prosecutors think so. Steve Vakrat is with NPR's Midwest Newsroom and is covering this story. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Who looked into these cases? These were two studies commissioned by the MacArthur Foundation. One took a look at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, and the other examined the prosecutor's offices in St. Louis County and Milwaukee County. The studies are considered unprecedented because negotiating guilty pleas is such an important part of how justice works, but there's been little in the way of critical examination of how these deals get made. The studies also found that prosecutors have outsized influence in this behind-the-scenes deal-making. And it turns out, according to these studies, prosecutors didn't always do a good job of documenting their decisions or keeping data about the outcomes of these negotiations. Oh, so part of the, the lack of knowledge here is just by the system itself. Things are not really tracked. But as far as they could tell, how often do people just give up and plead guilty? So the study didn't have those types of specifics, but in the Philadelphia study, several prosecutors did say that they suspected that innocent people sometimes did admit to something they didn't do. Based on the studies and my conversations with researchers, defendants sometimes feel pressure to accept a deal because they want to get out of jail quickly if they're locked up uh, after being charged, or they get a deal that's so attractive that they want to put the whole thing behind them. The study's authors thought that prosecutors admitting that some people may be innocent was remarkable. Here's the Urban Institute's Andrea Matei. It does raise ethical concerns, and it also raises some opportunities for practice changes and just different reforms that offices can make to avoid feeling that you can't reevaluate 
whether to offer a plea or not. Let's look at another layer of this. We know that people of different races, statistically speaking, have been treated differently in the criminal justice system. Is that true of plea deals too? Yeah, so the study found uh, that black defendants in St. Louis County, for example, are less likely to plead guilty than white defendants. And an expert I talked to said that's probably because of lack of trust in the justice system and skepticism about the consequences that of any offer that's made to them. Hmm. In Wisconsin's Milwaukee County, overall, there were fewer racial differences. About 65% of all people plead guilty in cases there. And going back to Philadelphia, a major majority of prosecutors surveyed acknowledged that people of color get harsher plea offers. And most said that structural racism is present in the criminal justice system, and that can impact a plea offer. What can people in the system do differently? So in general, the study suggests that prosecutors' offices do a better job of keeping data on plea deals, do do a better job of training their employees to stick to guidelines and policies around negotiating these deals. And they also suggest reducing the amount of cases they deal with by dropping some charges or offering diversion. Okay. Steve Vakrat is a reporter with NPR's Midwest Newsroom in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Will Smith has largely stayed out of the public eye since last spring after he slapped Chris Rock during the Academy Awards following a joke that Rock delivered about his wife Jada. Smith published a video apology addressed to Rock over the summer, and this week the actor did an interview with Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. That, that, that is, that, that's not who I want to be, man. I'm trying to, you know, I'm yeah, trying to I, put... I also think that's not who you are. I'll be honest right. with you. I think it's not who you are. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is uh, joining us now to talk about this. Uh, Eric, it happened eight months ago, so why now for Will? Well, you know, Will Smith has got a movie rolling out, uh, so coincidence? I don't know. <laughs> um, he has a new movie called Emancipation that's uh, coming to theaters and also to Apple TV+. And it's a creatively ambitious movie. It's about an enslaved man who's running away from hunters trying to recapture him. And I think there's a sense that uh, if, if he doesn't get out there and talk a little bit in a friendly forum about what happened at the Oscars, then um, the, the movie won't have as much of a chance uh, in Hollywood's uh, sort of awards uh, shows that are coming up. Uh, there's a hope that this movie will do well. And so he has to get out there and sort of diffuse things. And also it's a, it's a movie that I think that they're gonna have a challenge getting people to watch it. Um, some people don't want to watch movies about enslaved uh, people because the the subject is so brutal. So if he can get out there and talk about it a little bit and and maybe improve his image with some people who might have been turned off by what he did, um, you know, then then maybe the movie will do better. And how friendly of a forum did the Daily Show turn out to be for Will Smith? I think it was a particularly friendly forum. Uh, what we saw was that host Trevor Noah. Um, seemed to downplay the seriousness of what Will Smith uh, had done. And there was a moment where Trevor Noah even made fun of the fact that some people said that Will Smith should have been arrested for what he did, when in fact what Will Smith did was walk onto a stage and physically assault somebody for telling a joke that he didn't like. And I was surprised to see Trevor Noah take that tack because Trevor's a, a stand-up comic himself. And uh, if he was performing somewhere and someone walked up on stage and slapped him over a joke, uh, if that person wasn't a celebrity, they'd probably be in jail. So it was a, it was an odd thing to see, but uh, Trevor sort of went along with this idea of providing a friendly forum for Will Smith to sort of talk about what happened. And then in the end, Trevor Noah almost forgave him 
uh, in a way for the audience and said, you know, you're st you're still a great guy and hugged him at the end of the of the interview. And I've, I noticed that Noah kept referring to Chris Rock and Will Smith as two of his close personal friends. Yeah. And I think that was sort of designed uh, as as a way to sort of say, you know, I know both these guys. I'm not necessarily picking a side, but but in the substance of the interview, there wasn't much discussion of Chris Rock, who was actually the victim of this situation. And that's something that I, 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 I found very striking. Um, you know, uh, the, the issue that I've had with some of what Will Smith's done to address this is that so much of this has been about his reactions and how he feels and, and what he's going through. And very little space has been devoted to this idea that Chris Rock was a victim of whatever he was going through and is still struggling with it. And we didn't see much talk about that in this interview. And that was also disappointing to me. And would it be the biggest irony of ironies if he is nominated for emancipation but can't go to the award ceremony? I got to say, I would be amazed. I would be amazed if that actually happened. Uh, I think the Academy, uh, the Oscar Academy, is very aware of how bad it would look to nominate this movie or to set up a situation where you know uh, Will Smith might attend the Oscars or be asked to attend the Oscars or be expected to attend the Oscars. I don't think that's going to happen. NPR TV critic Eric Diggins. Eric, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. WBUR is here to help us all think harder. When we tell you a story, we think about how it'll touch your mind and sometimes your heart. Support journalism that has deep meaning in your life by giving monthly at WBUR.org. Think harder about everything. In the last few minutes, you've heard such a wide range of stories. Uh, there was the problem in some states of criminal cases ending in plea deals. There was also the Will Smith interview about his slap of Chris Rock. That's a pretty wide range. And think about that. If this is the time of year, you think about giving your year-end contributions. I happen to sit here every morning with two TVs on two different channels, which I will not name, but I am constantly comparing our, our content to theirs. And I really, I'm proud of what we bring you every morning. It's got its light moments. It's got its deeper moments. It's got its stressful moments. But it's all what you need to know and what you want to know every morning. This is our last fundraiser of the year. We know that you're with us here every morning and you want to support us. So we're coming to you to ask for your year-end contributions. We're trying to raise about $1,500 in the next... 15 minutes. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Amory Severson. We're now down to $4,900, Rupa, that we need to raise oh. in the next 15 minutes. $4,900. You can help us get there. And you're right. The, the breadth of coverage and the range of coverage, and it boggles my mind that we are able to do this for free. We're able to provide this for listeners without a paywall because of generous listeners who give what they can to keep this news and information free and accessible. You know, no paywall to fact-based journalism with WBUR. That's what you're supporting. one 800 
909-9287 is the number to call to do so or give at WBUR.org. No paywall. Give what you can. These are the keys. You know, not everyone can give. It's a really tough time. The point of WBUR is that no matter who you are, you can access what we put out there. That's truthful, complete, unbiased coverage of the news. And so if you are thinking about your year-end contributions, think about those people who maybe can't give, who really love WBUR just the same way you do, and you can step up for them to, you know, give on their behalf. Uh, On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty talked about kind of this subject, about what her program adds to all the other important stories we hear on NPR. There are a million different ways to get information that we want or think we might need, um, and especially when it comes to the daily news as, as we're a part of it on point. So we have made this very concerted decision, this very conscientious decision to actually step away from the jet stream of the daily news. And what I mean by that is even though we're going to give you an hour of programming every single day. What we're going to do is we're going to approach topics from an angle that wasn't covered in the previous 24, 48, or 36 hours. We're going to actually wait a minute. We're going to observe what has happened after that first set of headlines broke. And then we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that we still don't understand about this story? And that's what we're going to head towards as pointedly as we can. That is the journalism we're asking you to support. Meghna kind of represents us all. She asks the questions that we want to know that you don't hear answered elsewhere. And we we say it a lot, but we don't say it enough. Our listeners who give voluntarily provide the biggest share of our funding. And that's why your support matters. So we're asking you to please make your tax-deductible contribution at WBOR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is our last fundraiser of the year, last chance for you to make a gift this year and, you know, maybe cross that New Year's resolution off of, of doing more for your community. This is how you can do that with a gift in any amount, 1-800-909-9287. 287 is the number. Go to WBUR.org and give as generously as you can. Thanks so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The last time the Taliban ruled Afghanistan in the 1990s, the country seemed to take a step backward in time. The group banned television, for example. This time around, Taliban rule has made it hard for people to afford fuel, so some Afghans are swapping their cars for bicycles. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. It's late afternoon and folks head home from work the usual ways, bus, taxi, car and motorbike. But weaving between them is a new kind of commuter. A fellow with a turban and vest dashes through openings between cars with files in his basket. Another in tattered clothes carts a giant bag of apples strapped to the back of his bike. Teenage boys in school uniforms whiz down the road, racing each other. The commuters include 25-year-old Ahmed Fahim, who's peddling home from his job as a radiologist. 
He scoots to the curb to talk to NPR producer Fazal Manallah Kazizai. Most of my colleagues have bought bikes because the economy is so weak and the fuel is expensive. Everyone's getting a bike. Fahim says his salary was slashed last year because there just weren't that many paying patients. To save money, Fahim purchased a second-hand Chinese-made bike for $45. That's half his monthly wage. His situation is a small glimpse into how the economy has unravelled since the Taliban seized power in August last year. Western countries propping up the previous Afghan government halted their aid. Sanctions on Taliban leaders caused banking and trade to seize up. Then fuel and food prices rose after Russia invaded Ukraine. The UN says most folks here are going hungry, and even those who are still working are feeling the squeeze. Afghans who might have taken a bus or a shared taxi cab to get about the city are looking for something cheaper. And bike shops are doing a brisk trade, like the family operation run by 25-year-old Tofik Shirzad. We meet him while he pumps a customer's deflated tyres. Shirzad says he used to sell bikes for kids and teenagers. Now, most of his customers are adult men. He's never been busier. But it makes me sad. When people buy a bike from me, it means their livelihood is in trouble. I can't be happy. Shirzad's shop has rows of gleaming new bikes. Green, blue and red bells dangle from a ceiling hook. His customers want none of that. They're here for the row of second-hand bikes in the corner. Clunkers imported from India and China, their prices ranging from $5 to $20. On the streets, it's clear many cyclists are making do. Bikes are jerry-rigged together, plastic crates are lashed on for baskets. Some headlights look enormous, like they've been taken from motorbikes. It's unclear how they wire them to work. Sidewalk booths for quick repairs have mushroomed through the city. One repairman complained that three other shops opened recently in his neighbourhood, siphoning off his business. Abdul Mateen Amani's hole in the wall is one of those new repair shops. Amani gave up his taxi business because he couldn't afford to drive around anymore looking for customers. He says he learned to fix bikes in the mid-90s when the Taliban first seized power of Afghanistan. Back then, he says, Afghans also commuted by bike because the economy was in tatters. That first period of Taliban rule ended in 2001. And as the economy grew under the next two decades under Western-backed governments, Kabul streets filled with cars and traffic jams. Fewer people were riding bikes. But during that time, a growing number of Afghan women began cycling recreationally. They were pushing back on a notion in Afghan society that it was shameful for them to get on a bike. Like 19-year-old Lama, we meet on a street and walk into a restaurant. She requests we don't use her full name because her family fears persecution at the hands of Taliban officials. She says she used to pedal her brother's bike around her Kabul neighborhood. She loved cycling in the rain. Riding my bicycle and at the raining, it really felt me happy. So it was like a different world, different nature. Now, riding a bike is out of the question. The Taliban have told women to cover up and stay home. When you see other men can do that and you can do that, it feels like injustice. It really hurts. And while Lama knows all the men now riding bikes is a sign of economic ruin, 
For her, it's another reminder of all the things women can't do in the Taliban's Afghanistan. Dia Hadid, NPR News, Kabul. Ukrainian ballet dancer Oleksandr Shapoval is being remembered as a courageous romantic. Days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Shapoval volunteered to fight. In September, he was killed on the battlefield, according to the National Opera of Ukraine, where he was a principal dancer. He was 48 years old. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Blair. Prima ballerina Kristina Shishper met Alexander Shapoval 22 years ago. Speaking from Kyiv, she says their first ballet together was dancing the leads in Swan Lake. It took my heart and took my breath when I danced with him this Swan Lake first time. Shishpur and Shapoval went on to dance in many different ballets together. She remembers his versatility. She says he could be tender when the part called for it or fierce. Soon after Russia invaded the country, Shapoval volunteered to fight. Shishper says she wasn't at all surprised by his decision. It was to be expected, and everyone understood that he would give his duty for our country, for our people, for our children. He was always standing on the side of justice. Eventually, Shapoval's unit was sent to a region with heavy fighting, and he was killed. The National Opera of Ukraine issued a statement that said his death was received with indescribable sadness. He was a reliable partner, a reliable friend, a sincere human being, and I must say that he was the soul of the team. The soul of the team. Alexander Shapoval is survived by his wife and a 21-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of the year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. It's Layla Faulted from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. By going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Anne-Marie Sievertson on this, our last fundraiser of the year. That was Leila Fadel talking about the value of facts and the people who bring you facts, which happen to be us right now, show you understand the value of, you know, clear fact-based, accurate, complete journalism, unbiased journalism, and show that you know that it doesn't happen without your support. We have 
Three minutes left to go in this hour, and we're trying to raise $3,800. Show that you listen at this hour and you support WBUR and you care about keeping it going. If you consider public radio one of the essentials of your life, we're asking you to be part of our essential support. Make a monthly contribution at WBUR.org or call one 800 909-9287. I feel like I heard your heart drop into your stomach when you said <laughs> the amount that we still have to go, $3,400 now. So we are chipping away at it. But it really just goes to show how important this is, how crucial this is. As, as Layla was talking about, when you make a gift to WBUR, you are combating disinformation by fortifying the good information, by making sure that we can keep being here for you and providing WBUR as a public service to everyone that we can make the facts available to everyone. We all deserve that. And if you have the means to be able to support that right now, chip in. We have $2,900 now left to go. So we are getting there. We're getting there because of listeners like you who have stepped up to the plate, you know, taken ownership of their radio station and become a part of this, become a part of this effort to combat disinformation and misinformation with quality journalism that you get from WBUR. Join us right now in this last fundraiser of the year. You will get a New Yorker subscription for a full year as our thanks for a gift of $12 a month to WBUR. Again, that goes up to $20 a month after 6.30 p.m. tonight. So do this right now. Be part of this right now. Help us reach this goal by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving at WBUR.org. Yeah, just think about everything you get from from WBUR every day, not just what you hear on the radio or on the WBUR app or on WBUR podcast. There's also WBUR.org. Right now, we have stories about the Senate passing the protection of same-sex marriage. Uh, William and Kate's visit. Watch out for the traffic. It's going to be bad. Deals to avert the rail strike and some really hopeful results of a new Alzheimer's drug trial. That All that information is stuff I really wanted to know this morning. It's stuff that I want you to know this morning because we know it's important to you. It affects your daily life and your family's life and your community's life. There's a lot of noise in the media today. We strive to give you clarity and the information that is important and factual. Help us bring that to you. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. dollars to go. Thank you. Thank you so much for chipping away at this goal. There is $2,400 to go, so we could still use your help in the next few seconds, but thank you for what you've done. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries. Free Sundays and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.